0: It is a blessing to be gathered and worshiped unto the Lord. Uh, As we continue worshiping through hearing his word be proclaimed, would you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17? We'll be in Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. And as you all flip to the book of Acts, I want to ask you a question What is it that allows something or someone to be qualified as special? If something or someone is special, what is it that makes them special? I imagine many of us here have probably seen the movie uh, The Incredibles. Uh, I don't tend to watch a lot of movies, so I assume when I'm talking to people that if I've seen a movie, they've probably seen the movie before I have. Um, I watched The Incredibles not too long ago. If you've not seen it, I give it my personal recommendation. It's a great movie. It's an animated movie about a family of superheroes who, in the beginning of the movie, are doing their very best to try to live normal lives and not demonstrate to the public that they have superpowers. And there's a scene early on in the movie where their son, Dash, he's in a conversation with his mom and he's telling her that he wants to play sports. And his mom's talking to him, she's like, no, Dash, you you can't play sports because you would become too competitive. You display your superpowers to the world. That wouldn't be good for our family, like sports is off limits for you. And then Dash responds and he says, well, I don't understand why that would be a problem. He says, Dad says we shouldn't be ashamed of our superpowers because they make us special. And then his mom kind of downplays his comment. She says, oh, Dash, everybody is special. And then Dash, being smarter than his mom realizes, he pouts and he looks away from her and he says, that's just another way to say that nobody is special. And I think Jack was, or Dash was on something when he said this. So he seems to understand that in order for someone to be something special, then there must be special qualities about someone or something that are acknowledged and labeled about them as special. See, if everyone is roped into fitting a status quo that makes us all the same, then this whole concept of having special qualities, that just kind of goes out of the window. And in our passage this morning, we're going to take a journey with Apostle Paul. We're going to the city of ancient Athens. And arriving in Athens, Apostle Paul, he's going to encounter a population of people that serve multiple idolatrous gods and seem to want to add this the true God of the Bible to their collection of of idolatrous gods, but Paul's quickly going to get to the task of helping these people see that the God of the Bible is not like those other idolatrous gods that can fit into the collection. See, the God of the Bible is not only special, but he's the only true God and the only God that is worthy of our worship. And as we walk with Paul through Athens, I want us to adopt three practices of his for the sake of laboring towards the same end that he did, making it known that there is no God like the God of the Bible. These are three practices we should adopt in order to make this known. Number one, we want to carry God's truth with humble burden. We want to carry God's truth with humble burden. The second practice, we want to proclaim God's truth with biblical faithfulness. Proclaim God's truth with biblical faithfulness. And in the third practice of Paul's that we want to adopt, we want to trust God's truth with peaceful sobriety. Trust God's truth with peaceful sobriety. I'm going to read the passage for us, and then I want to ask the Lord for help as we dive into his word. Acts chapter 17, starting at verse 16. It reads, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshiped God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, what is this ignorant shawl trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we learn about this new teaching you're presenting? Because what you say sounds strange to us, and we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else, but telling or hearing something new. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, "'People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. "'For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, "'I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. "'Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, "'the God who made the world and everything in it, "'he is Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in shrines made by hands.' Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives life and breath and all things. From one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. So since we are God's offspring, then, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection, Some began to ridicule him, but others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me for another moment of prayer? Heavenly Father, we praise you as the one who is able to change hearts, is able to recreate people and give new life, new life and fellowship and relationship with you. We praise you as the one who does the undoable. You save people into relationship with you. You allow them to experience the joys of fellowship with you. And God, we thank you, all of us that are in the room that have experienced this salvation into this great fellowship. We thank you for being so gracious towards us to save us. God, we thank you that you did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. We thank you that you saw fit to give us new life in Christ, to have him go to the cross so that we, sinful people who deserve the death that he died, could be renewed in fellowship and relationship with you and have the hope of heaven to look forward to. God, we thank you so much for that. And we also thank you, Lord, that your word is a tool that you use towards this end. We thank you for the way that your truth allows blind eyes to be opened. You use your truth, Father, to reveal your hidden wisdom, as your word says, and we thank you for that, Father. God, I pray and ask that as we hear your truth be proclaimed this morning, that we be burdened to go share it with others. Father, would you give us a great burden to carry your truth with humility? Would you give us a burden to go and proclaim your truth, being faithful to the way that you've outlined it in your word? And God, would you help us to rest in the fact that you're sovereign to change lives and help us to trust your truth with a sense of peace about ourselves? Would you convict us for the times that we failed to be faithful and share in your gospel? Would you give us opportunities as we leave this place and and go throughout our day-to-day lives to make you known? God, would you bless us with opportunity and with burden to help people see that you are the only God, the only true God, who's worthy of any worship. God, I pray for myself as I prepare to proclaim that truth from your word and ask that you would make up for all of my inadequacies as a human. God, would you use my mind? Would you use my words? Would you use my tongue? Would you use my mannerisms? Would you use the entirety of my being, Father, to proclaim your word and pierce the hearts of your people? so that your church might be built up, so that we might be edified for the advancement of your kingdom. We pray all of these things in the name of your Son, Christ. Amen. So the first 12 words in our passage serve us really well. They tell us that we're dealing with Apostle Paul. They tell us where Paul is, what he's doing, and how he's feeling as he's doing it. And we see that the text says he is in Athens waiting for them. Now, the them that this text is referring to is Silas and Timothy. Now, they were partners and mentees of Paul in his ministry. And if you go back before our passage and read from the beginning of chapter 17, you'll see that Paul ends up separated from Silas and Timothy because they'd been ran out of towns by several groups of riots who were getting upset with them for proclaiming the truth about Christ. And the text says that while Paul waited, he became deeply distressed. I think the ESV says that his spirit was provoked within him. And now in order to understand why Paul is distressed and why his spirit is provoked, we need to understand what Paul's seeing when he arrives in Athens. Verse 16 says that the city was full of idols. And when it says it was full of idols, it means that it was full of idols. After Paul arrived, he would have looked around and seen these big brick-and-mortar statues, these these brick-and-mortar idols in the form of statues. Commentators say that there were Athens had so many idols and statues that you could find one on almost every street corner. And Paul would have seen the people of Athens worshiping and bowing to these statues as if they were gods. And then as Paul would have walked throughout the city, he probably would have overheard multiple conversations where people would talk about the God of arts or the sun god or the moon god or this god that created this thing and that god who created these things and rules this part of life. He would have seen and and probably been invited to plays and and, and these different forms of entertainment where artists and, and sculptors and, and, and actors would get together and, and they give these performances that uh, told the stories of these gods and how they ruled all of life. Athens had this culture where these people, they valued high-quality entertainment. They worshipped their finely sculpted statues, and they prided themselves on being deep philosophical thinkers who could comprehend the deep truths of the universe. So it was kind of this big hodgepodge of idolatry. They had this culture where everything was accepted, everything was inclusive, and nothing exclusive could be spoken. But now Paul, being the Christian that he is, when he shows up in Athens and he's got this worldview of of there being a single God who has provided a single way to heaven in Christ, he becomes burdened when he sees that these people are ignorant to that truth. Because he knows that it is true, because he experienced salvation himself, he becomes burdened when he sees that these people don't have this gift that he has. He was deeply distressed, the text says. His spirit was provoked within him. And our text also says that when Paul felt this, he got to work. Verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshiped God. He began ministering to make the truth known. And now when the text says uh, this about them worshiping God, it's not talking about Christians. It's talking about people who were religious and would engage in all kinds of religious activities and might have even believed in the God of the Old Testament, but had yet to accept the truth that Jesus was the Savior sent by that God so that we could be redeemed of sin. It says he reasoned with them, and he also reasoned in the marketplace with whoever happened to be there. And then verse 18, it says that the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Now, a little bit about these people. The the Epicureans, they were a group who believed that there were multiple gods who existed, but that those gods had zero concern with anything that went on in human life. They didn't believe in providence or in God controlling anything. They didn't believe in God's will coming about in the lives of humans. And they also believed that once the, uh, the earthly life was over, then that was it. There was no heaven or hell in the Epicurean worldview. And the Stoics... They believed that all of existence had some form of divinity. So they thought that everyone and everything was in some sense a God themselves, and therefore the ultimate goal in life for them was to discover their godness and then live in harmony with everything else in the universe. Some strange stuff that these people believed. But they were really smart. And they made really convincing arguments. And so when Paul shows up and, and they make up the majority of the population in Athens— and he begins laboring with this burden for, for truth to be known by them. They debate with him. And they label Paul as this crazy man who has no idea what he's talking about. Then if you look at verse 19, it says that they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. Now, Areopagus is a term that can refer both to a group of people or to a place. It literally translates to mean Mars Hill which was a place where uh, societal leaders in Athens would kind of gather, and they'd settle on disputes and civil issues within the society. And one of the groups that would meet on this hill was a council called the Areopagus, and they were the group that had authority to rule on these different issues in Athens. So when the text says that Paul was taken there, it could mean that they take him to this hill just so he has a larger audience to, to, to share with and so more people hear his truth, or it could mean that they take him to the council so that they could rule on whether his teaching would be allowed or not. The text isn't super clear on that, but what we do see, if we look at what the people say in verse 19, is that these people wanted to learn about this new teaching Paul was presenting. It says they wanted to learn about the new teaching. And it seems that their reason for wanting to hear Paul is because they want to take this truth that he's teaching, this this true God that he's telling them about, and just add it to the collection with the rest of their idols. So the people may be hearing Paul, but they're not hearing him in the way that he wants to be heard. Some of them think he's ignorant. In verse 18, they call him an ignorant show-off, or a babbler, as some of the translations say. And then we see others say that Paul is a preacher of foreign deities. Now, that that word deities, as a plural word, so these people aren't even understanding Paul to be talking about a single God. They hear Paul talk about the resurrection, they hear Paul talk about Jesus, and they're understanding that to be two separate things. And then again, we're here at the Areopagus, And some people want to learn about Paul's new teaching. Verse 20, they tell him that what he's saying sounds strange, but they want to know what it means. And look at verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there, basically meaning everybody in Athens, spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. So these people wanted to check all of the boxes and make sure they had all of their gods covered. And that's why in verse 23, we see that they have an altar dedicated to the unknown God, meaning just in case we forgot one of the gods we're supposed to be worshiping, this altar is for him. They wanted to cover all their bases. And so Paul has gotten all of these reactions, all of these different reactions to his evangelism. Some people are hostile. Some people kind of write him off as a preacher of foreign deities, And others are intrigued. They're intrigued by what he's saying just because they enjoy philosophical thinking but none of them. It seems that nobody really understands the truth that Paul is sharing at this point. And what I want us to notice is that when Paul gets these different reactions, he seems to maintain a consistency and a, steady, a steadiness and a, and a humility about himself. Don't forget that he's burdened. That's the first thing the passage tells us. Paul is burdened when he sees these it. He becomes deeply distressed. His spirit is provoked within him. But as Paul ministers out of that burden, he seems to have this humble approach to those he's sharing with. Verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue. That means he discussed and conversed and and humbly pleaded with these people to believe the truth that he was sharing. And then down in verse 22, he gets to the Areopagus and he begins his address by saying, hey, I noticed that you're very religious. So he doesn't start by by bashing them over the head and, and judging them and telling them that they're going to hell. Paul's humble with the way he starts the conversation. He approaches these people in ways that I can imagine, probably allow the door to remain open so he could continue to share the truth. And here's some questions I think we should ask ourselves in light of seeing how this works out for Paul. Are we burdened when we see the idolatry and lostness in society around us? Are we burdened when we see that people are worshiping idols right under our noses and when we notice that people are lost in idolatry are we prone towards self-righteous pride or do we remain humble in the way that we view and approach those people and I know we live here in the Bible Belt in the United States and pretty much everybody professes to be a Christian right but there are a couple of things we got to keep in mind about the Bible Belt so there are many people who profess to worship God but they're really worshiping idols We might need to even ask ourselves a question, are we some of those people? No, some of us have idols such as as money. We say we worship God, but when money starts to get shaky, when money starts to run thin, our praise to the Lord is tempted. Some people worship sports teams. You know, we're here with the Southeastern Conference in football. You know, everybody loves their local football team. That can become idolatrous. Some people worship the idol of, of being approved by others. Parents may struggle to worship god instead of worshiping their kids and if you are a kid then you may struggle with the idol of of good grades and the approval of your parents we got all these things that can tempt us as idols and take our focus off of god and we're right here in the bible belt and then there are other people who may actually worship god themselves but they do so with a sense of pride that prevents them from from reaching out to those that worship idols and inviting them to worship the one true god but if we're going to be the people of God and if we desire to please God, saints, then we've got to make sure that we're not only denying idols and worshiping God ourselves, but that we're burdened to see other people do the same. We should be praying and asking God, God, give me opportunities to evangelize and to share the gospel and also give me a broken heart because there are so many people around me who still need to hear the gospel. God, would you make me burdened to share your truth? It caught my eye that when Paul gets to the Areopagus in verse 23, he tells the people of Athens that he noticed they were religious because he had been passing through and observing the objects of their worship. Because he was passing through and observing what they worship, That means Paul's eyes were up as he walked through Athens. And can we say that we're intentional in the same way? Like even as we're more secluded from people because of the pandemic and, and, and we, we can't gather with people like we want to, How is it that we can still observe the lives of our neighbors for the sake of maybe sharing the gospel with them? Think about that. What are some things we can do to still observe and be present in people's lives for the sake of making God known? It's probably a lot easier during this time to actually see what people worship. People are at home. They're spending more time on on social media. It's easy to see what people give their attention to. But when someone posts something sinful, Or when they post something that's ungodly, do we become prideful and judge them in our hearts? Or are we burdened to see that person worshiping idols, not worshiping the Lord, and do we want to actually go and share the gospel with them? One of the reasons Paul may have been so humble in his approach to these people is because he knew what he was like before God saved him. Paul was a devout Jew, he would kill Christians for talking about Jesus and the resurrection. But because God is gracious, we see in Acts 9, God met Paul when he was en route to Damascus, and this encounter with the one true God, it changed Paul's life forever. And see, Paul knows that if it weren't for that encounter, he'd be very similar to these people. He'd be ignorant to the truth and worshiping idols himself. And, saints, I think we need to think the same way, because if it weren't for God graciously saving us, we'd be no different than the people we see when we look around us, we'd be no different than the people we judge. We don't have the right to be self-righteous because we didn't go and become righteous by ourselves. We've been declared righteous because Jesus has graciously given us his righteousness. And for that reason, when we see people that lack this saving relationship, when we see people that don't have this grace in their lives, that they've not taken this, this free gift that Christ has given us, let's not be prideful. Let's be humble. Let's be burdened. Let's want to share truth with them. Let's remember that it's because of God's grace that we've been saved, and then let's share with others in hopes that he'd also save them. That's what Paul teaches us in this passage. His burden for people led him to get out and to share the gospel, but he remained humble as he did. So Paul's labor has already taught us that we should carry God's truth with humble burden, and now he's going to teach us that we should proclaim God's truth with biblical faithfulness. Proclaim God's truth with biblical faithfulness is point two. And in verse 22, uh, we see that Paul is at the Areopagus and he begins an address where he points out the religious practices of people in Athens. Now, again, the fact that they have an altar for the unknown God, that indicates to Paul and to us as we read this passage, that their culture majored on including any God that sounded good and, and could potentially be added to the collection of their gods. And so they put this altar in place just to cover all their bases. But see, they had yet to encounter the one true God who's so glorious that he wipes away all insecurities and all voids that make you feel as though you need idols to fill them. But look at the end of verse 23. Paul tells the people, therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. He says, I know this God that you've missed, that that altar to the unknown God. I know what God should be worshipped, and I'm about to teach you about Him." And then in verses 24 through 31, Paul unpacks the entire story of the Bible from curation to the resurrection of Christ. And he says a whole lot of stuff in those verses that could honestly be a, a sermon series by itself. But to kind of cut things up and, and to, to bite size pieces so that we can kind of chew on it and walk away. Um, I want us to add four subpoints under our main point number two. So main point number two is proclaim God's truth with biblical faithfulness. But then beneath that, we want to list these four biblical truths that Paul was faithful to. These are four biblical truths that Paul was faithful to. Number one is that God is self-sufficient. Paul teaches that God is self-sufficient. The second truth is that God is the author of life. Paul makes it known that God is the author of all life. The third truth is that God wills for man to seek him. God wills that man seek him. And then the fourth truth is that man must respond to God. Man must respond to God. So we're going to briefly walk through these verses and uh, just kind of see how Paul teaches each of these four things. First, that God is self-sufficient. If you look at verse 24, Paul begins by telling these people that God, who is the Lord of heaven and earth, created the world and everything in it. Then he tells them that as the one who created all things, God doesn't need anything from us as creation. See, Paul's showing these people that unlike the altars and the false gods that they worship, God doesn't need us to create a place for him to rule from or to be worshipped at. He doesn't live in, in shrines or temples created by human hands, and neither is he served in any way by human hands. Why? Because he doesn't need to be. God has been in existence since before the beginning of time, and for the entirety of that time, he has found complete fulfillment in himself. So we as humans must realize that that God created us not because he needed anything from us, but because as he existed in this perfect fellowship with himself, as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, as he existed in this perfect fellowship, he graciously created man and he invited us to participate in that fellowship with him. So when we approach God in worship, remember that we're not doing God a favor. We're doing ourselves a favor by relishing in this great privilege that God has created us to have. God did not and God does not need anything from us as creation. He allows us to exist. He allows us to worship him. He is self-sufficient. The second thing that Paul teaches is that God is the author of life. Verse 25. He he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. Verse 26, for one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. And Paul also points out in verse 28 that this is an understanding that these people are so close to, yet still so far from. He says in verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. The reason Paul says that about the poets is because those lines about living and moving and having being in God and being God's offspring, those are lines from phis- uh, philosophical poems that, and, and poetry that people would often quote in the city of Athens. I just read that and thought to myself, isn't it funny how false worldviews can always or sometimes be so close to the Christian worldview? These false worldviews are also often so close to the true Christian worldview. And Paul's trying to help these people see that this concept, this concept of being created by God, being God's offspring, it's a good concept, but they've not identified the true God, the God who is like no other. See, the true God, he's the author of all life, and we are indeed created in his image, but as those created in his image, we should know that the creator doesn't need us to create idols or sculptures or even philosophical ideas for him to be legitimate. Paul says God isn't like gold or silver or stone or any image fashioned by human art and imagination. He's the author of life. God is the author of life. Life begins and ends with Him, and we must worship Him, understanding that He's sovereign over all of our lives. And that brings us to Paul's third point. Thirdly, God wills that man seek Him. God wills that man seek Him. Verses 26 through 27. From one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Now, these two verses are certainly some of the most difficult verses to understand in this passage. I think it's pretty clear that Paul is referring to Adam when he says that God created all of mankind from one man. But then he says that God also determined man's appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. And he says that he did this so they could seek him and find him. Now it could be said that Paul is making the point that specifically speaking, God has determined the exact period and place of everyone's lives so that those who would be saved would be in the exact environment which would lead to their salvation. Or in other words, each and every person who is saved by God is saved because God knew exactly what they need in order for salvation. And he put those exact things in their midst. But it could also be said that generally speaking, God has determined a beginning and end to all of humanity. And he has determined Earth as the place where humanity will dwell. And with that, during this period of human life on Earth, God desires humanity to seek him and to worship him. Either of those points could be what Paul is trying to convey. The text doesn't tell us exactly which one it is that he's, what point he's making. I think both points are true, but it is clear from what Paul says that God desires for man to seek and know and worship him. Paul says that explicitly. He says God isn't far from any of us. God wants us to observe all of the miraculous work he does in our lives, all around us so that when we look around us and see these miracles, instead of worshiping idols, we'll be led to worship the one true God. God ordains the events in our lives so that they will lead us back to him. And the fourth thing that Paul helps these people understand is that this worship of God, it must be what we give our lives to or we will regret not having done so. Verses 30 to 31. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So Paul points to the day that's coming where all people will give account for their lives of either having worshiped God or not. So these people have given all their days, they spent all of their days worshiping idols and false gods. And God was gracious to not condemn them and send them to hell at the start of their idolatry. But Paul says, God has overlooked those times of ignorance, and now that I'm sharing this truth with you, now that I'm, I'm making this truth known, you have the option. You can either repent and worship the one true God, or you can be judged for not doing so. He says, all of that stuff I just told you, that God created all things, that God sustains all life, that God doesn't live in shrines or temples. He says all of that is true of the true God. And the reason you can believe it is because he's given us the ultimate proof in the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. See, Paul is getting ready to make the point that like 1 Corinthians 15 says, because Jesus did indeed rise from the dead, the gospel is worth staking your entire life upon it. He's making the point that because this gospel truthfully teaches that Jesus accomplished the ultimate supernatural victory, defeating death, overcoming sin we can stake our lives upon the gospel man must respond to the truth of the gospel paul says there's no way around this truth that i'm sharing with you you must respond to this truth you either worship god you repent or you don't and if you're someone in the room who has yet to respond to that truth if you're here this morning you're not a christian If you've yet to respond to the truth that Jesus Christ sacrificed his life, he died a death of crucifixion, a death that that sinners deserved, even though he was completely free of sin. And then after dying this death, he, he, he paid the debt for sins. And after doing so, he did what only God could do by also rising from the dead and defeating death and overcoming sin for eternity. If you've not placed your faith in that truth, then I encourage you to consider what Paul's saying here. God commands all people repent or be judged. We can repent or we can be judged. So to, recaps Paul, to recap Paul's address at the Areopagus, he teaches that God is self-sufficient. He teaches that God is the author of life. He teaches that God wills that man seek him. And he teaches that man must respond to God. And it's, I didn't intend to say this, it's not in my notes, uh, but did you notice that Paul watched this entire narrative from creation to the resurrection of Christ, and he doesn't quote scripture a single time. Not once does he quote directly from the Bible. He even refers to a poem that they wrote as philosophers about false gods. Some friends of mine and I were in Haiti for a mission trip we took during uh, our years in college. And on this mission trip, we did a bunch of fun stuff. We went and served um, in, in physical labor. We served by preaching the gospel. We served and just building relationships with a lot of the Haitian people. And, and whatever we could do, we went and served. But on the trip, they also gave us an opportunity to have a little bit of fun or, of our own. So one of the mornings, we had the option to go on a 5 a.m. hike. This hike would have been up a mountain in Haiti called Mount Pignon. And the reason this hike was optional. Is because there were people, <laughs> this mountain was known for having people start the hike, get halfway, and decide that they couldn't finish it. So they have to turn back and go back down the mountain. And I played college football. Most of my friends were college football players. So we are on this trip together, and our, our, our missionary guides kind of tell us, like, hey, you got the option to go on this, uh, this hike in the morning. Um, don't feel like you have to because it's a tough hike. And she said that, and we took it as a challenge. It's like, <laughs> you obviously don't understand, like tough hike like there's no such thing as a tough hike does we're in our prime we we do two a days and we have fall camp and all these We we got this prideful mindset of college football players and so we decide we're going to take the hike and then we show up to the bottom of the mountain and they give us another option they say okay so the best thing to do now is to split into groups some people may feel that they're in better physical shape you all will go in group one with Rootson. I will let you know, Rootson is uh, an extremely experienced hiker, he does his hike all the time, he's led many groups, that probably move pretty fast, so you don't have to go with Rootson, but if you want to go with Rootson, feel free to join Rootson's group. And they told us every, about the other groups and, and how uh, they would be at slower paces. So we went with Rootson, and we start up the mountain, I'll never forget, it's dark, and the bottom of the mountain is, you know, what we expect when we hear hiking in the United States. Uh, paved path, there aren't a ton of trees around. Um, and then it's like we just hit a wall and the paved path that we're walking on became this extremely steep, rocky, unpaved path with bushes and shrubs. And you just kind of climbing over stuff, climbing under stuff. And this is this isn't a hike. This is this is an expedition at this point. So we're following roots and we're trekking up the mountain, trekking up the mountain. And then we get about halfway, and Rusin hears us breathing. Rusin was an arrogant guy. He looks back, and he goes, huh, you must be tired. It's like, no, no, we're good, Rusin, we're good. So we go a f- little bit longer, a few more minutes. He says, we can take break if you're tired. And so, of course, our pride was hurt, but we decided to take the break. We rest a little while. We drink some water. You know, I'm, I'm geared up. I've got these hiking pants, these hiking boots. I've got all of the gear that you need to go hiking. I had bought all of this stuff for this mission trip that I'm on. And we continue hiking, we take another break. And we continue hiking to the point where our pride was completely broken. It's like every five minutes, like Rootson, we need to take another break, man. And one break in particular, we sit on this, I, I sit on this stone, and I'm just kind of sitting there, catching my breath, drinking water, and Rootson props his foot up next to me. And I look over and notice that Rootson is wearing those rubber sandal flip-flops that you can find at Dollar General. I'm geared up in hiking boots, I've got, like, cargo pants. Like, I'm geared up for the entire thing. I just knew that I was going to just go out there and and mutilate this hike. And Rootson's got on flip-flops. So I kind of look over at his feet, and I look up at him. I say, Rootson, do you always hike in these shoes? He says, yeah, it's okay. I do it all the time. And, again, I'm extremely humbled. But I tell that story because I think we can approach evangelism a lot of the times in the way that I approach this hike. We can think that we have to have all of these formulas and tools and, 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 and specific ways to say specific things in our minds. But what Russen and Paul proves is that it doesn't necessarily require a formula for us to get the job done a lot of the time. Rusin just had flip-flops. He knew the terrain. Uh, in, 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 in a similar way, if we know the terrain of God's word enough to unpack the narrative of it, and if we're just faithful to share that, then God might be faithful to save people with what we can relay. So I hope that's encouraging to some of you that may be discouraged in evangelism because you feel like you don't have the right words to say. It doesn't always take the perfect tools. It takes a willingness. It takes knowledge of general knowledge of God's word and the willingness to share that. The burden to make God's truth known. So Paul proclaims God's truth with biblical faithfulness. Then he gets to the resurrection, and the people cut him off when he mentions that. Just look at the abruptness of verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. Now, Paul has been faithful to the task of carrying God's truth with humble burden, and he's been faithful to the task of proclaiming God's truth with biblical faithfulness. I think we as God's people should seek to do the exact same things. And now we see that when Paul gets cut off for mentioning the resurrection, he shows us how to trust God's truth with peaceful sobriety. So point number three, trust God's truth with peaceful sobriety. Now this word sobriety, uh, that's me sounding like I've got a bigger vocabulary than I actually do. Uh, What sobriety means, or or the opposite of sobriety, kind of if you were to think of a word to compare it to, it'd be something along the lines of drunkenness or uh, uh, being in a state of mind where you don't have a soberness about you. And the point that I'm trying to make here is that Paul doesn't have impaired or drunken expectations for his labor in Athens. So he obviously wants to see people be saved. He's burdened to see people be saved. But he knows that the one true God is the one who must change their hearts. So Paul doesn't get all bent out of shape when these people ridicule him about the resurrection. And we see that some of these people's responses were different. Some do ridicule him. Others were intrigued and and they wanted to hear more at a later time. But there were also some, as the text tells us, there were some who did believe some believed. Now, Paul's address in Athens, the capital of philosophical thought, his address lets some of these people, even an Areopagite himself, as the text says, it lets some of these people to trust God and begin a life of living faith and repentance to the one true God. So while Paul is ridiculed by some, the Lord uses his labors to bring others to faith, And I think we should we should expect the same results from our own evangelism as we go and be faithful to share the gospel. We should expect to see those same results. We should be ready to be ridiculed for our faith and we should be ready for some people to seem interested, but maybe not repent when we think they will. But we should also be ready to rejoice if we're faithful to share and the Lord is faithful to save. I think being prepared for either of those responses and knowing that God is the one who determines what they be, that's the way we faithfully labor and seek to make disciples of Christ. That's how we labor while also trusting the truth that God has armed us with. Paul was burdened, yet he also trusted God and his ability to save. Our Justin Martyr, and I'll close with this. Uh, Justin Martyr is a saint of the early church church. And he is actually the guy that we get the, the, the word or the term martyrdom or to be a martyr, someone that gives a life for Christ and, and ends up dying for, for standing in their Christian faith. Uh, just, he was an early saint, um, a saint of the early church, and he writes about how his conversion happened after he went through a season of seeking truth. He went through a season of seeking and, and trying to study and, and discover all these different philosophical ideas to know the true essence of the universe and the true essence of people. He went on this journey and And he would meet with philosophers and and intellects and all of these people that were known for taking these heady truths and convincing others to follow their way of life. But he writes about how he would take these trips and meet with these people and talk with these people. But he'd leave still not being convinced of what they tried to tell him. He'd leave feeling empty. He'd leave feeling like he didn't have any of his questions answered. And then one day, Justin was out on the beach and he just happened to meet an old man. The old man isn't even named in the book that I read. He just happened to meet an old man on the beach. He gets in a conversation with him about Platonism, and as he and the old man discuss Platonism, the man launches off that conversation and shares the truth of the gospel with Justin Martyr. And Justin was saved on the beach that day. The story says that the man, after sharing this truth, prayed, I quote, for gates of light to be opened, and for Justin to receive God's truth. And Justin was saved by this man's faithfulness. But he wasn't saved because the old man convinced him. He was saved because God changed his heart. And I wonder if we were faithful in the way that the old man was faithful, in the way that Paul was faithful, if we're faithful, to, if we're faithful and, and have humble burden to share God's truth, if we are faithful to proclaim God's truth In a biblically faithful way if we're faithful to trust God's truth as we proclaim it and have a peace about ourselves might God use us in the same way might God use us to see people experience new life in him so father I pray and ask that you would give all of us the necessary burden to be used in this way I pray and ask that as we leave here that you give us more opportunity to share your gospel Would you give us opportunity and boldness, God? Would you give us discernment to to know when opportunities present themselves? And then would you help us to be relying upon you to faithfully proclaim the truth of how you gave your life on the cross, redeeming sinful mankind and affording those who follow you the opportunity to be in right relationship with you and to hope for an eternity of that in heaven. We love you so much, God. It's in the name of your son, Christ, we pray. Amen.